Have you ever heard of fight or flight response? The term describes what naturally happens when we encounter something stressful or frightening. And so, for example, let's say you're going for a walk and suddenly you encounter an angry dog. Your body becomes activated, and in that moment, your response might be to get away as soon as possible, flight. Or you might have the opposite reaction, and you show anger and dominance toward this dog, fight. And it's like a reflex. You might even kind of yell at that dog or jump toward the animal um, even before you've had any time to think. The body just sort of takes over because it's been frightened. And whichever reaction a person has, the flight or the fight, behind it is an altered physiological state. Um, this term was coined by the American doctor and physiologist Walter Cannon, and he published a book in 1915 documenting how our nervous system alters things like metabolism and blood sugar levels and body temperature and so forth in those threatening moments. It reminds me how Psalm 139 says we are wonderfully complex. In the old language of the King James Version, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And all these changes take place in the body when we encounter that angry dog. And researchers since Walter Cannon have gone on to learn more and more and all the anatomical systems that are involved in that. When we have a perceived threat, our body systems kick in. Various glands are involved, the so-called stress hormones, specific parts of the brain, such as the hypothalamus, the amygdala, our heart rate is changed. Did you know that in a fight or flight response, your heart can go from beating the normal one gallon per minute to five gallons per minute? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, as a pastor and someone who has done hospital chaplain work, I'm particularly drawn by this finding. Modern researchers know that perceived threats that persons encounter do not have to be physical to trigger these physical responses. You don't have to have a near miss with a semi on the highway or encounter an angry dog or be a soldier in a war to have your physiology triggered from top to bottom in one of these altered states. Uh, came across a couple authors in psychology today who observed that in fact many of the perceived threats that we encounter these days are not physical, they're cognitive. In stressful situations such as job interviews or learning that you forgot to return a prospective important client's phone call or being summoned to a jury, these and a hundred other things can trigger very similar reactions. Here's another example of a big cognitive stressor. For many people, learning that they will have to do a public presentation, public speaking, can trigger the fight or flight response. And I love the old Jerry Seinfeld bit that goes, he says, I saw a study that said that speaking in front of a crowd is considered the number one fear of the average person. I found that amazing. He said number two was death. Death is number two? This means that to the average person, if you have to be at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy. <laughs> this morning, we're going to encounter a psalm that involves a stressful, frightening situation. And it's precisely the sort of situation that from a modern standpoint 
we would expect to have triggered the fight or flight response. And here's the situation. In the cover of darkness, there are snipers who are targeting people, including the psalmist. Long before the era of modern firearms, there were still projectile shooting weapons that could inflict incredible damage and that could be and often were lethal. Psalm 11 verse 2 reads, Behold, the wicked bend the bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. So we're going to take a moment and talk about this ancient, very potent weapon, the bow. The bow is actually quite simple. It's a curved piece of wood with a taut string that joins the ends. When you think about it, a bow is a launching device. And with that taut string, it simply launches an arrow. And arrows were not that sophisticated either. You're just talking about like a shaft of wood that has a tip. But it's kind of like a bullet point. That arrowhead was the business end of the whole weapon. All right? And it was amazing to me when I was doing research on this. I was surprised. I, I saw a photography and description. One bone arrowhead was four inches long. I thought, man, if that thing you know, went into someone, just think of the bodily trauma that would cause. And these arrowheads were made of things like bone, uh, bronze, uh, stone, very potent stuff. And you say, well, Rick, I, I don't know what it's like to be targeted by a sniper in a lethal situation. I mean, maybe someone in here has, and you survived it, and praise God. But you may be saying at this point, well, what does this psalm have to do with me? And so I want to take just a second to talk about the function of psalms and the function of Hebrew poetry, because that's what the psalms are. These are songs and poems that go back to the ancient Hebrew. Now, as in Hebrew, sometimes it's not always clear what is intended to be literal and what's intended to be figurative. And a lot of times in poetry, both are present at the same time. It's meant to be taken literally and figuratively. Um, and, and let's not forget that for the, the whole Bible in general, many parts of Scripture have what are called multiple fulfillments. Let me give you an example. Isaiah 7:14, the birth of a son, Emmanuel. Well, that, first of all, referred to a son who was born around the time of Ahaz and Isaiah. But, of course, we, if you've been around church, you know, in, in this room, we know that very famously, Isaiah 7.14 also refers to the birth of the Christ child to Mary eight centuries later. See, multiple fulfillment. Or take another example, uh, the prophet Jonah. Jonah 1.17 talks about Jonah being alive in the stomach of a great fish for three days. But this episode, according to Matthew 12, was ultimately about a dead Messiah as well, right? Jesus was crucified, he was literally dead, and after three days, he resurrected to, to, to new life. So we, we see here multiple fulfillments. 
And so even though you may not have had the literal situation of having arrows or guns pointed at you from the darkness and targeting you that way, I want to submit that probably all of us in this room do have the experience of having been targeted. Maybe the targeting was false accusations. You were accused of something that you did not do, of being someone that you're not. Maybe you've had a strong perception that you were being targeted, but you couldn't actually quite put your finger on who is targeting me. Have you ever had that experience where it just seems like something keeps going wrong and then wrong and then wrong, and, uh, you know, you just can't pinpoint who, who is that enemy, but it feels like I'm getting shot at from the dark out there. I mean... There's so many situations in which the psalm can apply. Maybe you've been targeted in your business dealings. Maybe in your neighborhood. Maybe you have extended family that have it out for you. Maybe some person or entity has treated your Christian faith like a bullseye, and they've tried to discredit you, your beliefs, or they've tried to make it difficult for you to have the free exercise of your faith. I don't know, maybe you have a, a, an ex who's trying to harass you and make life difficult. What is your situation? You know, friend, if you're a follower of Christ, I want to just reemphasize, and it's been said from this pulpit many times before, but you do have an invisible enemy. And sometimes you are being shot at from something you can't see. Right? Ephesians 6.16 says, In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And we discussed this in our Armor of God series a few months ago, that every Christian undergoes spiritual attack. The devil and his minions are sniper archers. And so this verse, Psalm 11, 2, fits the picture vividly. The wicked bend the bow. The devil bends the bow. His minions make ready the arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright of heart. Uh, the teacher and writer C. Hazel Bullock identifies Psalm 11 as belonging to a group of psalms that may be called the songs of the persecuted and the accused. Bullock finds about 10 of them in Scripture, and this is one of them. So we're going to study this psalm. It's not a super long psalm, but there's a lot of meat in here, and I just have felt led to go through it line by line, verse by verse. Let's see what the Word of God has to say. You know, one time, a solid Christian man opened up to me about something that was going on, uh, that something that went on in his past, uh, thankfully it was behind him. But it just, as I was thinking about being targeted and things that happen and just the range of things that happen from accusations and, and people searching us out to do something negative, this came to mind. He talked about how he was targeted at one point by his own pastor. Uh, he was told he was no longer uh, able or free to serve in this church, but he could only attend it. And why was that? Well, it was because this man was taking care of his kids while working on a college degree, and his wife worked a job outside the home, and she brought home the paycheck. And this pastor, who was heavy-handed, told him that the man should be the financial provider, 
and that he had things all wrong in his household, and until that was corrected, he was being demoted and not allowed to serve in several ministries of the church that he was a part of. I mean, myriad are the ways that fine people are targeted and hunted down by some sort of ungodly bow and arrow. I think back several years ago, uh, our family was being targeted by an individual, and we ended up having to go to court and obtain a restraining order. Okay, now they, they weren't trying to hurt us, we don't believe, but they were definitely menacing us and almost like wanting to be a part of our family. And uh, so, you know, there's all sorts of things that go on, and whatever that situation is in your life, God says to you today, I want to be a part of that, and I have resources for you in my word. And so, he wants us to draw encouragement from Psalm 11 today. Now, after the heading of this psalm, it begins with the words that are its central message. In the Lord, I take refuge. In the Lord, I take refuge. The Hebrew verb is chasah. It means to take refuge, to confide in, to obtain shelter, to obtain protection and relief. It means to put trust in or place hope in something for security. Do you want relief? I know I do. Do you desire a place of protection, a place of shelter from the storms? Well, that is the provision of chasah. And more than 40 times, the book of Psalms urges us to take refuge in God. But that's not our human nature. Our human nature is to want to flee or to freeze or to fight. But what if there's an alternative to running away? What if there's an alternative to freezing in utter fear? What if there is an alternative to digging in our hills and preparing to fight in our own strength? Well, there is, friend, and that alternative is kasah. It's taking refuge. Jen Schultz shares that one of the things that she's looked to for refuge when life is stressful is food. How many can relate to that this morning? Comfort food, right? We got it in our pantries. Let's go. And when she was a new mom and she was nursing... She started to see in herself a pattern, and one of the things she would go to was food, especially chocolate food, all right? Um, But that wasn't it. Shopping, watching TV, doing social media were additional activities that she noticed were her go-to places when she was frightened, when she was stressed. Friends, listen to the wise words of a self-aware Christian young mom, Jen Schultz. She says, watching a good movie to take a break for a bit is not a sin. Shopping is not a sin. Here's where the problem comes in when that is my first response to a sign of challenges. When I ignore the problem and pin pretty pictures on Pinterest instead. When binge-watching The Office becomes a priority and everything else goes on hold. Boy, I like that. Because sometimes you say, yeah, yeah, we, we'll go to the Lord. But it's not our first response. We've done all sorts of things to address our stress and ease our flight and fight response. 
And then maybe, maybe we say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll pray about it. Taking refuge in God is what the psalmist in Psalm 11 has chosen to do. But it's clear that in this psalm, others who are feeling the same heat and seeing the same stressor are in flight mode. And they've told the psalmist to make like a bird and take flight. And he rejects their advice, but we can detect, we can detect that he's irritated with it. Look at the, the opening verses here. It says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? The wicked have their destructive arrows pointed right at you from the shadows. See, the psalmist has a close relationship with God, and he's irritated when other people come in and they see all that stress and they say, flee as a bird to your mountain. Because, as will be confirmed in the next verse, this advice, this advice goes against spiritual faith. We don't know exactly what the original situation was with these snipers and these archers, but we know that the psalmist's stance was, a mighty fortress is my God, a bulwark never failing, a helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. But this other group's stance was totally different. They weren't singing a mighty fortress. They were saying, leave God out of it, and you're better off. If you want to sing, you're better off singing, I'll fly away. He got resistance big time. No one was with them. And I love how the Living Bible brings out this irritation of the psalmist. It, it, its first verse says, How dare you tell me, flee to the mountains for safety, when I am trusting in the Lord? That's the sense of it. This is a man of faith under attack. And that's bad enough, but now you've got another group saying, You better flee and get out of there. The late Richard John Newhouse was an author, a minister, and traveling speaker, and he challenged Christians to live out our faith in the public square. He founded a magazine, First Things Magazine, and there's a story and an account of when Newhouse arrived in a city in Pennsylvania for a speaking arrangement, and the man who picked him up at the airport did little else but bemoan and decline American culture and how bad it was in the country, and Newhouse listened to this, and he listened to this, and he listened to this, and finally he responded, these may be bad times, but these are the only times we are given. Remember, hope is still a Christian virtue, and despair is a mortal sin. Wow. He told the truth. Newhouse was reflecting the take refuge in the Lord position. But this other man was more like, man, the sky is falling. It's bad out there. And that's not a bad transition to verse 3, which is both a famous verse and a difficult verse. Look at it with me. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Okay, the foundations of what is not made clear. But frankly, the ambiguity lends only power to the line. But in light of this context of the sinister snipers, several publishers do a great job in their Bibles to kind of flesh this out. So, for example, the New Living Translation uh, reads, The foundations of law and order have collapsed. Uh, the Amplified Bible has, If the foundations of a godly society are destroyed. Others have paraphrased with, The foundations of truth and morality have crumbled. You get the idea, all right? Some sort of foundational collapse. Now, the big issue in treatments of this verse is whether what can the righteous do is a genuine, a genuine inquiry, what can we do, 
or is it a sigh of resignation? And you know, we as people, we love action steps. And I've come across devotional guides and sermons that eagerly present a list of action steps for what the righteous can do when the foundations are destroyed. Okay, they're eager to tell you, one, two, three, do all these things. Well, yeah, there's always good things that Christians can and should be doing. But in the context of the psalm, verse 3 reads more naturally as despair or resignation. Right? The same mouths that are saying, take flight, are saying, the situation is so bad that fleeing is what's to be done. What can the righteous do means there's nothing the righteous can do. It's lost. It's hopeless. Forget it. But then look at verse 4. Big shift. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Last week I was talking about this psalm with a pastor friend of mine who uh, pastors a church here in West Wichita. And we were marveling at the stunning transition between verse 3, the foundations destroyed, what can the righteous do, to the Lord is in his holy temple. And my friend started to say, I just love this because it's, it's telling us that the right question is not what can the righteous do, but the real question is, and we both said it like verbatim at the same time. It was just so funny, but we both blurted out, who is God? That's the real question. The right question is not what can the righteous do, but who is the God of the righteous? When the foundations are destroyed, who is the God that beholds that situation? Who is the God that interacts or plans to interact with that situation? What's he like? Is there a God? Ray Pritchard tells the story of a powerful message that Dr. E.V. Hill once preached in Chicago. And Pritchard said... In his own unforgettable style, E.V. Hill preached for 40 minutes on just two words, God is. He said it over and over again. He whispered it. He shouted it. He illustrated it. He proclaimed it. He dared anyone to defy it. It wouldn't seem that a person could preach that long on just two words, but E.V. Hill did, and it was unforgettable. Don't look for action steps. Look for God. Remember who God is. Remember that he is. Amen? Verse 4 continues with a second pair of poetic phrases, and the two are supposed to be treated as synonyms. It says, The Lord's eyes behold. The Lord's eyes behold. So here we have this picture of this awful situation. A psalmist and other people are being threatened from the shadows by people with lethal weapons, but the Lord has an aerial vantage point. He is in heaven. That's where his throne is. And when you've got that vantage point, you see everything. He knows the situation. He knows where every wicked person is in the equation. The next phrase in the text seems odd and puzzling in English translation. The Lord's eyelids test the sons of men. Whoa. What is that about? Well, I wrote a big, long page about what that's about. I just 
I want to really simplify it, make it very simple, okay? What it comes down to, and Robert Alden said it best, is that in English, there are no synonyms for the word eyes, okay? And the Hebrew works a little bit differently. And so in our versions, we get the Lord's eyes behold, the Lord's eyelids test the sons of men. What it's basically saying, and it's been rendered very well by the Christian Standard Version, it reads, his eyes watch, his gaze examines everyone. Okay? The notion here is not that sometimes God's eyes are open and he's looking, and other time they're closed, and so we see his eyelids. And I've come across that too uh, in interpretations of this psalm. But it's, it's not that way. The Hebrew is very parallel. His eyes, his gaze, it's just reinforcing, it's making the point a second time. The Lord's eyes test, they try, they examine the sons of men. Sons of men, there's another Hebraism. It just means people, right? It means human beings, right? The sons of Adam and Eve. We're all that. The Lord is watching. His gaze is looking down on all the people that he has made. But now contrast this, what scripture says about false gods. Uh, later in the book of Psalms, Psalm 115 has these lines, Idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have eyes, but they cannot see. See, well, not only does the true God see, he also tests, he examines everybody, similar to how someone is examined in a court of law. Psalm 11 is saying that God is an eyewitness to the complete and total truth about every single person. Let me say that again. Psalm 11 is saying that God is an eyewitness to the complete and total truth of every person. And in verse 5, expands on this fact by specifying which categories of persons God is an expert witness on. It reads, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And then we have one of the rare instances in Scripture of a statement of what God hates. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Verse 5 reads. Friday was the 51st annual March for Life in Washington, D.C. And it was impossible to be studying this psalm in the last couple of weeks and that event to be happening, but, but not think of the abortion industry. It just came to mind. You know, and Roe v. Wade may be gone as far as law, but certainly abortions are not. With mail order, mefepristone, the abortion drug, picking up where each closing of a clinic leaves off. Okay, and the largely unregulated abortion industry is powered by profiteers who have betrayed classical medical ethics. Friends, did you know the, the original Hippocratic Oath, what goes back to Socrates, right? The, the, the Greek who was considered the founder of, of, of medicine. The original Hippocratic Oath says, I will neither give a deadly drug to anybody who asks for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. Similarly, I will not give to a woman who asks for it an abortive remedy. Okay, that, that used to be considered ethics to do medicine. Whether an abortion is chemical or non-chemical, abortion is nothing if not violent. Now, please hear me. There are a thousand forms of chosen human violence that other humans embrace and love, all right? 
Elective abortion is just one of them, and it's one I'm highlighting today because of the annual January March for Life. But friends, take comfort in the fact that the Bible is clear. From snipers, to human traffickers, to domestic abusers, to rapists, to homicidal dictators, like Putin, for example, God hates those who are unrepentantly lovers of violence. You and I and all the theologians may never comprehend why God allows so much evil and violence in this world. But we do have God on record saying that he hates it. And that's part of the reason why God is such a fantastic refuge. Right? The scripture says God's soul, his very being, his core, hates the one who does violence. The word in the original is Hamas. Yes, you heard me right. Hamas, violence, is a word in Hebrew and Aramaic whose root also made its way into Arabic. You might hear or read that Hamas, the Arabic terrorist organization, has that name because, well, it's an acronym. It's an Arabic word that means zeal. And those two facts are correct, but it's also correct that in Arabic, it also means violence, as it does in Aramaic and Hebrew. Okay, so that terrorist organization knows this, and they relish in that. And when every Hebrew-speaking modern Israeli hears about Hamas, they're hearing the word violence. And Psalm 11 says God hates Hamas. And if you go into Genesis 6, you'll read that the flood of the earth happened because the Lord looked down on the earth and saw that it was filled with violence. Hamas, same word. J.J. Johnston had a story in the Washington Times. The headline put it well. This, this was the real headline. Hamas is in the Bible, and the terrorist group lives up to the name. Wow. Wow. Well, verse 6 of our passage continues on the topic of the wicked, and it elaborates on their ultimate future. The text reads, Upon the wicked the Lord will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. You know, here's another thing that sounds a little bit weird to our modern ears, but talk of one's drinking cup was an ancient way of summing up one's quality of life. Right, probably the most famous psalm is Psalm 23, which includes the words, my cup overflows. And it's a picture of this abundant blessing that comes from the good shepherd who's caring for uh, the, the person in Psalm 23. Well, here we have a picture of judgment, and the judgment is of plague-like proportions. And notice how well this verse fits with other scenes in the Bible. I, my mind was drawn immediately to the book of Revelation, which has these end-time plagues, right? Revelation 20, verse 9, foretells of an episode in the end times when there is a last attempt of godly armies from the nations to destroy Christ's millennial kingdom and its citizens. And here's what that text reads, And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, meaning Christ's people, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. We may not appreciate that there's apocalyptic in the book of Psalms, but there is. 
and it fits right with what Revelation is saying. It also fits with what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17. Uh, I'm reading here from verses 29 and 30 of that gospel. He says, On the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur, or brimstone, rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. What a wonderful unity throughout Scripture. I believe that Christ's followers can, through the Spirit's power, develop the refuge-in-God response as opposed to the fight-or-flight response because from Sodom and Genesis to Psalms to the Gospels to the book of Revelation, God's Word says that the ultimate fight is God's. He sees all. He hates evil. He controls fire and scorching winds. And verse 7, the final verse here of our psalm, adds to the list, For the Lord is tzaddik. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. And that promise in the final line of the psalm accords perfectly with what Jesus preaches centuries later in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for what? They shall see God. Okay, not only do we take refuge in the Lord in the sense of I've got a shelter, I've got a, a place to shelter in place, but at the end of history when this thing is all wrapped and God opens his books and he judges the living and the dead, guess what? I'm going to be able to see face to face my creator and Lord. What a day that will be. So I ask us this morning, and I'm asking myself this as well, do we take refuge in God? Do we take refuge in God? Or do we just pull out a hundred of our own personal coping mechanisms, from Pinterest to pornography to food to fill-in-the-blank? Have you believed God's message of the cross and empty tomb such that God declares you righteous? That God says, you're my pure in heart one. Not because that's naturally who you are, that's because I've made you pure in heart because you've trusted in my son. See, the best refuge any of us can ever take refuge in is the person of Jesus. The first words of Psalm 11 are, in the Lord. And the word order is for emphasis. In the Lord, I take refuge. Think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. It's all about being in the Lord, in Christ. And my hope for each person here is that you would be in Christ, that you, you could say when the foundations of life and society are in disarray as they are in America in 2024, or disarray in your own personal life, in Christ I take refuge. There is a new creation. It's not about what I can do in my own strength with 10 action steps. It's about who God is. It's about knowing that he is with me even if I'm targeted by the wicked the devil himself can light arrows and, and shoot them at me, but I'm not fleeing. I'm sticking around, and I'm going to take refuge, and I'm going to purpose not to make my first response to stress taking refuge in things that are not God. That's the message for us, friends. And so I'd just like to, uh, before we go, to, to sing this wonderful song about Christ being our firm foundation 
and being the foundation that never crumbles but holds us fast in the storm. I'd just like us to pray. So if, if you would, please bow. And I just want to pray that God would allow us to assimilate the truth of this psalm in our lives. Lord Jesus in heaven, forgive me for the many times I have flown like a bird to my mountain instead of putting confidence in you. Remind me of your power to protect me when destructive forces are aimed right at me. Help me not to freeze or to take flight or to fight in my own strength, but to fight with your spiritual weapons and to trust your fighting and how you will ultimately defeat all the enemies of your kingdom. Thank you, God, for being a mighty and righteous fortress. And all God's people said, Amen.